So welcome to uh, the special program this evening. As you can see, I am not Rabbi Ari. Um, as I know you've all heard, Rabbi Ari's uh, dear grandfather passed away um, uh, at the ripe age of 98. Um, Rabbi Ari was particularly close with his grandfather. So it's a, a challenging and difficult time for him and his family. Um, many of you have had the good opportunity to meet uh, Rabbi Pfeffer, and on one of his visits, I know he's attended a number of classes, maybe even on Zoom. We had the great honor of having him um, come to Atlanta many times over the last uh, many years. It was a very special Jew with a great sense of humor. What I particularly loved about him was that his, uh, his Judaism was light. He was a light person. For all of his, uh, his taking his Judaism seriously, he was a light person. He didn't... Uh, didn't come across heavy at all. And um, he was both uh, a, an emissary of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe and, and, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he shared stories with us over the years. So, um, so that, that's very powerful, um, and uh, he'll be missed, and our thoughts are with Rabbi Aryan this evening and during this challenging time. Um, speaking about grandfathers, I know that, uh, that label, our speaker tonight, um, and we're going to touch on this in a little bit, um, was influenced greatly by his grandfather. And um, we'll talk about that shortly. And just to, to tie it in a bow, tonight is my grandfather's yard site. Um, my grandfather, Rabbi, well, actually he did not want anybody to call him Rabbi. I actually specifically instructed that on his tombstone, they should not write Rabbi because he never got official smicha. He never was ordained. Um, his name was Mordechai Shusterman. He was, uh, he was the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Torah reader. Um, that was my claim to fame. He was also a, a, a printer of uh, many of the Chabad books. Um, and in fact, the, the printing, the name of the printing press that printed Rabbi Ari's book um, was taken from his printing press. Um, it was called Ezra and Balshan. And then when they closed that down, the central Chabad publishing house took one of the names as a, as a separate unofficial line of Chabad publications. Anyway, he was a special man in tonight's his yard site. So we have these great, uh, these great elders of our people that are powerful influences in our lives. And we, uh, we hope and we pray and we are sure and confident that they are looking down from heaven and um, their memories should be a blessing for all of us. So let's jump in. We'd like to welcome Label Mangel. And uh, I'd like to encourage everybody as we go through the program tonight, um, feel free to chat, um, not with each other, but chat with us, put some questions in the chat. And uh, as the evening goes along, we'll try to address some of those questions. And um, I'm also a big fan of people with their videos on so we can see you and we can connect with you. So unless you're doing dishes, and even if you're doing dishes, we don't mind, but we'd love to see your face. Okay, so without further ado, welcome Label. And I'm gonna jump right in to our, uh, our program for tonight. And this, the program tonight is gonna to be uh, Label telling his story through questions. I'm gonna interview him. And again, if, uh, if some of my interview questions fall short, please share them and we will, um, we will move along, try to address them. So our first question for tonight. So Label, thank you for joining us tonight. And let's start with, uh, with some questions a little bit about who you are and your background. Um, we'd like you to tell us about yourself. How old are you? Where do you live now? We know from your bio that you grew up in Cincinnati. 
how did your fan, family end up there? And what was growing up in Cincinnati like, uh, like for an Orthodox Jew? For example, what kind of schools were there, et cetera, et cetera. So please enlighten us. So before I do begin, I just want to thank you all uh, for joining me this evening. Thank the rabbi and uh, Leah for, for putting this event together. It really does mean a lot to me that I get to, you know, spend some time with you all and share a little bit about myself, my family, and, and our journey and our story. Uh, so growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, actually a, a northern suburb of Cincinnati called Blue Ash, my father, my parents were Chabad in Blue Ash, uh, you know, emissaries of the, of, the, of the Rebbe there in Cincinnati, and really grew up in a normal suburban, you know, childhood life. Uh, had a good life, had an easy life, you know, spent the Shabbat and holidays, you know, in the Chabad house, helping out with services and, and things of that nature. Uh, there was in Cincinnati only one, I guess I would call it modern Orthodox uh, elementary school that we all went to. There was one kosher restaurant that would close down every couple of years and reopen in some other name in the hope to find some success. And that was, you know, kind of what life was like. And the way it worked in our family was that after our after the boys had the, our bar mitzvahs, after we turned 13 and, and finished seventh grade, we would leave Cincinnati to continue our education. We, we, we left, you know, myself was to Chicago to, to go to a yeshiva, a school that was kind of more in line with our family customs, our family traditions and our family way of life. And this is really, you know, where the journey got started for me. Uh, really struggled, you know, leaving home, really struggled to find a place where I felt like I belonged and could thrive and fit in. And I ended up bouncing around from, from school to school. I went to five different schools over the next three years. And again, the reason for that was very simple, was not being able to find that place, that school, that location where I felt like, you know, this is the place for me. You know, back in Cincinnati, we had a much more, I guess, lenient, you know, education and, and learning structure. And now moving into a yeshiva system, it was a very difficult transition for me. And at that point, at the age of 16, I made the decision and came to the realization that, you know what, I need a little bit of a different path for myself. You know, I respect my family, their beliefs and their way of life, but I need to find a way to pave my own journey. So at that point, at the age of 16, I decided that I'm coming back to Cincinnati to enroll in my local public school. And the reason for that being was I always had this childhood dream that I was going to be the first Chabad religious kid to play in the NFL, to play professional football. And, you know, in the yeshiva system, I wasn't afforded that opportunity, right? We, we played, uh, you know, football in, in, in the concrete in the back of, in the back of the school. And, you know, we played tackle football when it would snow, but I was always had this dream, you know, I'm going to play football. And I knew that the only way for me to do that was to go to public school where I played football for my hometown high school. And I graduated two years later with the opportunity to play football at the collegiate level. You know, I, Chabad kids were known for, for many things, but, but playing football is not one of them. But I, but I did have that opportunity in my mind. That was what was going to come next. I was going to continue my education, uh, you know, go to university, continue living out this dream and play football. And that's, that's really where my, my journey got started. Um, you know, I, I was enrolled to, to play uh, football at the University of Cincinnati uh, to walk on there to play football. And Ultimately, I didn't end up making that decision, but that's that's kind of where my journey really kicked off. So tell me a little bit. It, it sounds to me as a Chabad Nick that uh, you seem to be going through a little bit of a, of a rebellion. Um, was that what it was? How 
Was it considered a rebellion to your family, to others around you? How did they take that? Yeah, so I, I get this question a lot, and I think it's a fair one because on the surface, you know, on the outside, it does look like, you know, a, a kid who's who's just rebelling against, you know, their, their family way of life or way the parents brought them up. And I kind of push back on that a little bit because I didn't see it as running away from something. I wasn't running away from, you know, my childhood or, or my family and then their beliefs. I wasn't running away from Judaism. I was simply trying to almost run towards something, try and find myself, try and pave my own way. So, you know, I've, I've been called the black sheep and I've been called the rebellious one. And there definitely were, you know, some difficult conversations that my parents and I had because obviously they felt that the yeshiva system was the best way to raise their child and, and to continue on the path that, that they, you know, so strongly believed in and every moment of their life was, was geared around this. Um, but I, but I don't see it as rebellion. I, you know, again, I wasn't running away from something. It was more trying to run towards something and, and find myself and make, make my journey my own. I didn't just want to go down the path because that was the path that was set for me. I wanted to make sure that the path that was going down was personal to me, was one that I truly believed in and, um, you know, one that, that I can make sustainable. And for me, it was, you know, a couple left and right turns that definitely were not the norm for, you know, my family or, or, you know, my parents or what they were used to, but I don't see it as, as I didn't see it. And I don't see it as, as rebellion or being rebellious. Good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay. So pick us up. You're, you're ready to play football. What happens? I was sitting on my couch, you know, kind of thinking about the journey ahead, what would be like, you know, what are my goals, my aspirations in university and college, um, you know, playing football, things of that nature. And, and, kind of just sitting on my couch in Cincinnati, thinking about all these things, it became very crystal clear to me in that moment that at this point in my life, my mission, my purpose is not to be, you know, the Chabad kid playing college football, but rather to be a soldier in the IDF. You know, hearing my grandfather's stories growing up, my grandfather was one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz, and hearing his stories growing up, I always knew that there was going to come a time, a point in my life where I was going to have to do something to give back to him, to, to give back to my people. Um, you know, it was really, and, and this may sound a bit exaggerated, but it was honestly at times difficult to look him in the eye, knowing how much he had sacrificed, how much he had done for, for my family and, my, and our people. And, you know, here I was just living this comfortable life in Cincinnati. And, and how, do I, how do I meet him at that level? What can I possibly do? So I never really knew what it was that I was gonna do or when it was going to be, but sitting on my couch there in Cincinnati, it became crystal clear to me that right now is my time to move to Israel and, and to enlist in the IDF and kind of put, up, put off this dream of mine for another time. Wow, that is a, that is a big, that's a big leap. Yes. Big leap. So I, I, I myself am very curious and I'm sure many others uh, tonight are uh, curious as well. So you come to Israel, you're joining the army. What does that process look like? You just show up, say, hey, I'm here. Yeah, so I wished I asked that question before I went as well, because I had no idea. I had no idea what the process was. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. You know, I'd watched, you know, a couple of videos on YouTube of what it meant to be a soldier. I've seen some movies that, you know, depict apparently what, what being a soldier is like. And that seemed pretty cool to me. And I thought I was going to you know, fly to Israel and land at the airport. And there's going to be this big red carpet lined out for me. You know, here's this American boy moving to the IDF and everyone would take care of me and handle everything for me. And I thought it would be a very seamless transition. And I couldn't have been more wrong. 
you know, I, I got off the plane in Israel and of course there was no red carpet. In fact, there was nobody there to greet me. And I kind of had to figure out this new world and, and new country and new system all by myself. And I remember kind of the first moment where it really hit me of like, okay, this is a little bit different than I thought. And I'm not quite sure what I was getting myself into was when I walked into a bank in Israel for the first time. And, you know, I'm from suburban America and I'm used to the bank being a pretty pleasant experience. I walk in and it's quiet and the teller comes over and asks how they can be of assistance. And they kind of walk you through the whole process and you're in and out in 10 minutes and everything's great. Well, I walk into a bank in Israel and, you know, something hits me in the face and there are people shouting and cutting each other in line and I don't speak Hebrew and I have no idea what's going on. And it takes me two weeks to open a bank account. And, you know, this is when I really realized, okay, I, I don't really know what I got myself into. And really those first couple of months, even before the military, you know, going uh, to, the, to the ministry's office to try and get all the right paperwork and get my name into the system where I can go through all the proper, proper physical and medical and mental testing to getting drafted and ending up in my unit, even in my unit, those first few months was, was very, very difficult. And I questioned that decision that I made many, many times, you know, wondering again, if I was just trying to live out, live out some, some fantasy or, or some dream that I had about, you know, what being a soldier was actually like. And, and there, were, there definitely were moments where I even thought, you know, maybe I'm just going to go back to the States and, and kind of forget this whole chapter. Um, you know, the, the part that they don't show you in, in the YouTube videos is once you get into the military, it's, it's, it's not a lot of, uh, you know, shooting guns and cool things. It's a bunch of running around for no reason and not eating and not sleeping and not showering. And, um, you know, I had very much, very many difficulties with the language and connecting, you know, with other soldiers in my unit and things like that. But I'm, I'm very grateful that I had a, a good support system around me and, you know, kind of people who, reminded me to, to stay focused on, on the big picture of why I was there. And it wasn't about my day-to-day -day struggles, but, you know, the bigger picture of, of protecting the Jewish, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, uh, Jewish life, and kind of that mentality ultimately got me through those, those difficult moments and, and really not only got through them, but helped me thrive mm -hmm. in that, you know, first very difficult environment. Go ahead. I don't know how I, we, we, Put down a chat. I don't know how to send it. What's the connection with your grandfather that sent you on that path? Hang on, you're jumping, you're jumping the gun here. Give the man a chance. Okay. We're gonna get there. Yeah, right. we'll get into it. We'll get into Going it. Going back to mute. Okay. Um, I, I have a curious question. Did you yeah. did you need to make Aliyah in order to, to join the army? So there are two ways of doing it. There's one where you make Aliyah. Uh, many times through an organization like Garin Sabar or something like that, you go with a bunch of other, uh, you know, guys or gals your age who are going to move to Israel, make Aliyah and join the military. Then there's another program called Machal, uh, which I went through, which you don't need to make Aliyah and you go as a volunteer. So you're not actually becoming a citizen, you're, you're volunteering yourself um, to join the military. The amount of time that you're required to serve is a little bit less. You know, once you're in the military, you serve with everybody else, just like everybody else. But the process to begin is a little bit different. And, you know, again, this comes to my lack of knowledge of what I was getting myself into. If I knew there was a way where I can go with a group of 20, 30 other guys and girls and we go through the whole process together, and there's actually an organization who can help you out through that, you know, through that process. I definitely would have done that. But I was, you know, completely ignorant about it. I didn't know. I didn't know that there was another way. So I'm um, through Mahal. You basically go by yourself, uh, which was the way I did it. 
So was the training any different or the service different? Tell us a little bit about that and some of your experiences. Yeah, so it's, it's completely the same. Once, once you actually get drafted and you enlist in the IDF, you serve in the same units as everybody, regardless of which path you took to get there. Uh, you know, the training is not like, you know, people ask me all the time is like, well, you didn't speak Hebrew. They send you to a unit of, you know, where they speak English. And it's like, no, it's still the Israeli military. Everyone speaks Hebrew and you just struggle until you get to a place where you understand what's going on. There's no, you know, special English unit where everyone there is from America. Once you're in, you're in with everybody. I mean, I was the only English speaker in my unit. Um, so the differences are really about the process of enlisting and getting to the point where you're drafted and in the military, but once you're in, it's all the same. Okay, so tell us, once, once you're in, you're, you're now, you've gone through your training, what are your assignments? Where, how long did you serve and, and what were your assignments? Yeah, so I was assigned, once I finished basic training and moved on to advanced training, I was assigned as my team and platoon machine gunner. Uh, my job was I carried a, a machine gun instead of a rifle, a much larger weapon with a lot more firepower. And my job was always to be either the first soldier across a field, the first soldier across the street, the first soldier into a building to provide cover fire for the rest of my team behind me. So if we were crossing the street, we wouldn't have all the, the whole team run across the street. It would obviously put everybody's life in danger. So I would enter the street first, lay cover fire, and the team would pass behind me to cross the street. Uh, same thing if we were, you know, crossing a field or entering a building, things like that. Um, so I ended up serving close to two years, uh, which is a little bit less than the standard, which is used to be three years, which is now about two and a half years. And I guess that's another, another one of the differences of making Aliyah, where now you have to do the entire service or going as a volunteer and your required service time is a little bit less. Um, and then once, you know, training was over, um, my unit, the Kfir Brigade, specialized in counter-terror operations. Um, so we operated in urban environments exclusively. Um, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, that could be, you know, security patrols between the, the Jewish and Arab towns. Um, it could be setting up checkpoints to uh, search vehicles for weapons. It could be, um, you know, every Friday there would be large, large riots that would target uh, Jewish towns and, and Jewish cars and Jewish people, we were in charge of you know, putting an end to those riots. And then at night, we would get various intelligence information and go out and on various missions and operations to hunt down uh, wanted terrorists and those with you know, innocent Jewish blood on, their, blood on their hands and take them off the street. So that was a little bit of what our day-to-day -day operations was like once we finished our 10 months of training. I just find it fascinating that, you know, I mean, I've known of other People have gone from America to join the Israeli army, but here you have a Chabad kid from Cincinnati. And then before you turn around, he's like out there with a machine gun protecting Jews and, and the people of Israel. I just find it fascinating. So, so tell I think us that's actually an interesting point is, is I don't think it gets talked about enough, right? Is the, the in the media and there's been a few TV shows recently where it likes depicting the conflict you know, within the religious community, how, um, you know, the religious community doesn't like to send their children to the IDF and doesn't support those children in the IDF and um, doesn't support their children, you know, going and going on a little bit of a different path. And, and those cases do exist, but they're not the norm. I mean, I had my parents support, again, not to say that there weren't difficult conversations when I decided to leave the yeshiva system, but my parents, you know, came to my football games to watch me and support me when they could, you know, in Israel, they showed up to 
you know, to my graduations and celebrated my successes and, and the journey that I was there. And, and those numbers continue to increase. The amount of Chabad kids in, in the IDF today is, is an incredible number. And that's not only for the Chabad community, but for the larger religious and Hasidic community. And it doesn't make the headlines and it doesn't make the TV shows because it's, it's less interesting, but, but that's the reality. And I wish people talked about it more. Yep. If it bleeds, it leads. Anyway, yeah. tell us a little bit about some of your, uh, did you have any close encounters and what were those like? What went through your mind? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, anytime a, uh, a, a soldier steps onto the battlefield, so to speak, it's a close encounter because it, literally every step can be the difference between life and death. And, and, um, you know, there was a specific incident where I was stationed in Hebron, in Hebron, in Judea and Samaria on the West Bank. And uh, some of you may, may have been there. It's a pretty popular place to visit. But uh, there, in the middle of the city, there's a checkpoint that separates the, the Jewish and the Arab parts of town. Um, and one day I was coming back from a few days off, a few, a few days of leave, and I was walking towards this checkpoint where then I made a left and went up this very large hill and our outpost was kind of at the top of the hill. Uh, so I took a left and as I was passing the checkpoint and starting to walk up this hill, the checkpoint exploded. Um, and I didn't have, being that I was coming from home, I didn't have my weapon on me at the time. So I was pretty useless at that point. So I started running up the hill. And as I started running up the hill and made another left to turn into where my outpost, our base was, I heard the whistle of gunfire going by, past my head. Um, and this was probably the closest call that I personally had. And I think to your question of what goes through your mind in those moments, nothing, right? Is your brain doesn't even comprehend what's going on at the moment. It's all just falling back on your training. So, you know, the, the checkpoint exploded. I knew I was useless because I was unarmed at that moment. So I wasn't thinking about, okay, what should I do? My first instinct is I need to get my hand on my weapon. So I'm going to run to base. And then I hear the bullets whizzing by my head. And again, I know I still can't do anything. So it's not that I was stopping to react to it or to think about, oh my God, that was close. It was, I need to get to my weapon. I need to get to my tools so I can be of, of, of use in this situation. And I think it's only after the fact, you know, really, really after my military service where I, you know, could stop and think about all these situations that I had experienced and really try and comprehend, you know, what it all means and, and, how I should react and respond to it. Because in the moment, you know, throughout your service, there is so much going on that there's no time to, there's no time to think. I mean, that day, you know, from that incident, there was about a six hour engagement to, to put an end to this attack that, that was uh, coming towards us. And then right after that, it's on to the next thing. So it's not like the six hours are done and then you, you know, sit down and relax and talk about it and figure out how you feel. It's, well, now it's on to the next thing. So there really isn't time to think about it until your military service is complete. And I think that's why we see so many struggles from soldiers, from veterans after their military services, because you have an entire service of experience that it's now dumped on you all at the end. Um, so that was a little bit of, of what that was like. And, and again, you know, that was one that stands out to me, but I think every time, you know, a soldier puts on the uniform and in his helmet and his vest and steps out into duty, it's, it's a life and death situation and, and it really hits you and you, you comprehend and truly understand that, you know, once you kind of put the uniform back on the shelf and, and have time to, to think and, and decompress and, and things like that. I'm just in awe. That's all I can say. I'm in awe. Tell me, tell me a little bit. I know that you were um, 
uh, involved with uh, Operation Brothers Keeper in 2014. Yeah. Tell, tell me, I, I want to kind of wrap a few questions together because you mentioned the media. And um, unfortunately, the media portrays Israel and the Israeli army um, in, in a dishonest light. Tell us a little bit about what your experience was in terms of the the uh, the IDF's uh, intention in implementing and instilling humanity into the into those challenging moments and you know the the well known uh, well at least well known in 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 Jewish circles about the the candy right so you know yeah. the, the soldiers tell us a little bit about that operation and and uh, you know kind of the the IDF's attitude towards these things yeah so. Uh, Operation Brothers Keeper in the spring of 2014, just for those of you who may not be as familiar, uh, Operation Brothers Keeper was when three Jewish boys, three Jewish teenagers were hitchhiking home from school one evening and were kidnapped uh, by Hamas terrorists. Um, and the reason that my unit, my team was so heavily involved in that operation is because that, that kidnapping actually took place about 100 meters away from where we were stationed, right across the street from where we were. Where we were. Um, so our job at the time was to ensure the safety of the Jewish people in that area, and that happened under our watch, which was obviously a, you know, a big failure at the time. And and we were very closely, uh, very directly involved in not only the the search and rescue for them. Um, but also the the operation, the missions to go out and and uh, capture those responsible. Um, so really, you know, those those 18 days uh, from from the kidnapping um, were some of the most difficult days of my life. And there really are two things that, that stand out to me about that time period. Uh, one is the Jewish unity that was felt around the world during that time period. It's unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And it's unlike anything I've ever experienced since then. And I remember one specific, uh, one specific story, there was a gentleman who, he would come and protest uh, our presence in the area. He'd come almost every single day, you know, to, he'd hold a sign and he'd shout and, and yell at us and curse at us and, you know, all those good things. And then when these boys were kidnapped, he, he once again showed up every single day, but this time, instead of holding a sign and shouting, he brought with him home cooked meals and would give each and every each and every one of us a hug and said, you know, I protested you yesterday and I may very well protest you again tomorrow, but today I, I understand that you are my children. And that, that was really the attitude during those, you know, 18 days is, you know, we had visitors from all walks of life, you know, Orthodox Jews, less Orthodox Jews, Jews who leaned left, Jews who leaned right, like none of that stuff mattered anymore our differences didn't matter because there was one thing that was so much stronger, so much greater that united us. And that was the fact that we, we were, we were family. We were the children, the people of Israel. We needed to lean on each other for strength and for support. So that's what we did. And, and that's something that I really, even till today kind of wrestle with of, of how do we get back to that place where we understand that yes, we have differences and, and we have different beliefs and different ways of life, but none of that is important, right? The only important thing is, is this, this bond that unites us that no one can ever take away from us. And how do we get back to a place where 
where that becomes the focus again. And, and even more than that, how do we get to a place where we don't need tragedy in order, in order to feel that? You know, how, how is that just not to focus every single day, regardless of what's going on? And um, you know, it's something that I still think about quite often. Um, but 18 days later, there was a small team from, from my unit, a small team of paratroopers and a small group of civilian volunteers who were, lay, who were experts in the layout of the land in this area. Uh, we were searching through a field outside of the Arab city called Khalkhul. And in this field, we were walking around for a little while and then one of the uh, civilian volunteers stopped us and said that you know, something in this field doesn't look right. There's this field, it's alive, there's plants, there's grass, there's growth, and there's this little area where nothing's alive. It looks like, you know, the plants are dead and things have been trampled and, and there was a large rock in the area and the large stone, the large rock was removed and there in a shallow grave, we found uh, the bodies of the three boys, Ayal, Gilad, and Naftali. You were present in that operation. Yeah, yeah. Again, it was a small, small unit of soldiers from, from my unit, a small group of soldiers from the paratroopers and a small group of civilian volunteers. And, you know, in that moment, uh, you know, obviously our worst nightmare had come true is, is we were literally in charge of protecting these people. And, and this was the result. You know, they had been brutally executed just minutes after uh, they had been kidnapped, their, their bodies had been dumped into this field that had been, you know, out in the hot sun for, for 18 days. It wasn't a pretty sight as, as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, as difficult, as difficult as that moment was, the moment following was the only moment in my entire service where I felt and soldiers alongside me felt a desire for revenge. And the reason for that was, is, as the bodies were being transported out of this field in ambulances, those ambulances were attacked. Mm. And for me, this was, uh, you know, you, you got them, you killed them. You, you, you did what you're, you set out to do. I, I obviously it's, it's heartbreaking and disturbing and it's evil, but I think to then desecrate their dead bodies is a whole different level. Um, but, but why this moment stands out to me, and I think this speaks to the morality of the IDF. And from here, I'll, I'll, I'll jump into the, the candy story, but my commander saw this. And that night, as we were preparing to head out to an operation on a mission, he gathered us all around and, and he said very sternly, as, as I see the look in your eyes and I wanna make it crystal clear that anybody right now who has a desire or feeling of revenge, anybody right now who is not being fueled or is being fueled by anything other than the love of their family and their people needs to step aside and stay back. And I think, you know, this speaks to, this speaks to the morality and, and, and the greatness of, of, of the IDF as a whole, right? Is we are not there because we have a desire for revenge. We're not there out of hate. We're not there out of anger. We exist for one reason only because we love our family and we'll do whatever it takes to protect them. And that's it. And the second we cross that line, we're, we're no different than anybody else. And the fact that 
that my commander saw it and, and was able to, in that moment, come back to our essence and make sure that we all fall in line for me, uh, you know, speaks volumes. And, 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 and for that reason, I am so proud to have worn the uniform and, and to serve. And, you know, we did. There were a bunch of soldiers who took a step out of that circle and didn't go on that mission that night. And, and we kind of recentered ourselves and regathered ourselves and then got back to our, our core beliefs and our core values. And, and you know, that was a, a very powerful moment. And to the candy, to the candy story was something that we would try and do on every uh, mission that we went on when possible. Um, we would try and make sure that we still bring the humanity into the situation. So if we were entering somebody's home because their father or their brother, you know, was a terrorist, someone that needs to be removed from that home and taken off the streets, the, the little children in that home are innocent victims as well. And in an environment like that, it's very easy to lose your humanity because you get so caught up in, in, in the job and, and, survival and, and things of that nature. You see it many times in war where people completely lose themselves. And so what we would do is, is when possible, we would bring, you know, chocolate bars or candies and cookies and, and try and have some kind of human interaction uh, with, with the children, with the innocent people in that home. And, and you know, I, I don't know what kind of difference it makes in the big picture. I know that it helped me, uh, you know, keep my humanity. And then there's a small part of me that, that believes also is that maybe in 10 years from now, when this kid grows up, you know, instead of following in the ways of, of, of maybe his father or his older brother, he remembers that he had a positive interaction, positive interaction with a soldier and maybe tries to look a little bit deeper and think deeper into that moment. And maybe that stops somebody from going down that path. But again, I think it speaks to um, what we stood for and what the IDF stands for. Is again, we're not there because we want to be there. We're not there because we're, we hate another people or we're angry at another people. We're there simply because we will do whatever it takes to defend our family, defend our homeland, and defend the Jewish nation. And, and that was the main thing, and that was always the main thing. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that that's an IDF initiative, the candies. So no, it wasn't something that was commanded to us of, you know, you need to, to go ahead and do this. It was something as, um, you know, as a unit, we talked about and felt like, you know, if we have this opportunity to do this, we're going to do it. I know that we're not the only ones. It's, it, it's become a pretty common thing. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a command, you know, that you have to have to go ahead and do this. I think it just speaks to, again, is, is this is what we were taught and preached from the day we put on the uniform. And and that trickles down. You know, it has the effect and soldiers buy in and they believe it. And then, you know, we, we try and do whatever we can, even if it wasn't canny, you know, if an opportunity to kick a soccer ball around with a Palestinian kid or you know, uh, share a laugh or share a, you know, a hot cocoa, whatever it was, you know, we tried to, to take it upon ourselves to do that. Yeah. Tell us about uh, Operation Protective Edge. What was, what was that operation? So Operation Protective Edge shortly followed Operation Brothers Keeper in the summer of 2014. Operation Protective Edge began because at the same time that we were searching for these Hamas operatives in in Judea and Samaria following this kidnapping, Hamas in Gaza, you know, wanted to get in on the party and they started raining down thousands of rockets into Israel. And obviously it came to a point where, you know, we couldn't stand for it any longer, where Jewish lives throughout the entire Israel were being threatened. Um, so the operation started with the goal of entering Gaza to put an end to the rocket fire and, and protect 
you know, the, the, the homeland, protect the people of Israel. But very quickly, uh, terror tunnels were discovered. Tunnels are being created from Hamas in Gaza that would come underneath the border and open back up in, 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 in Israeli proper to either kidnap and kill as many as Isra Israeli citizens, Jewish citizens as possible. Um, so the goal, the mission of the operation quickly became to try and find and destroy as many of these terror tunnels as possible. So I'm anxious to get to uh, discussion, and I know others are as well, to hear about your relationship with your grandfather, but a few more questions um, about the Israeli army and then yeah. a little bit about, about uh, the continuation of your journey. So tell us a little bit about what makes the, the IDF such an elite army. Um, obviously, everybody around the world is, is, uh, looks up to the Israeli army as being top of the line. Um, yeah. T tell us how you feel about this. What's your experience around this? Yeah, I, I like this question a lot. I, I think I think it goes much deeper than just we're the best trained. Because in all honesty, that's probably not true. I've, I've trained with uh, in two weeks during my service. I trained with United States Marines and in, in, in Israel, and, and they're pretty well trained. And there's other militaries around the world that are very highly skilled and very well trained. So I think what sets the IDF and Israeli soldiers apart is the fact that we're literally defending our own backyards, right? Is we're not going off to another country, you know, to go fight a war. We're not being shipped off anywhere else. Like I have soldiers who I served alongside who they could literally see where their home was and where their families lived and where their, you know, little sisters and, and cousins and brothers lived. And they know that if they don't hold this line, their entire family is in danger and it's that personal it's it's we are fighting for the survival of our people in our own backyard and without us we would not be there and i think that's what takes takes the idf and, and the israeli soldier to the next level it's it's deeply personal it's deeply rooted and there is no one else who's going to do it we're small people we're a small army and if if you know, the guy next to me is not there or I'm not there. There's no one there to replace us. And I think that's what makes the difference is, is the mentality of, you know, if not us, then who? And if we're not there, you know, our people won't survive. And, you know, I think that takes a well-trained soldier to a best soldier in the world is, is what's inside. And the fact, again, that we're not motivated or inspired or we're not, we don't act out of a hatred for anybody else is simply that love for who we are, for our family, for our people, and what we stand for. Amazing. I know there are a lot of questions, and I just want to assure everybody we're going to get to all the questions, yes. both that were chatted and and the hands that are raised. But let's let's continue on your journey. So you're you're served for two years. What happened after that? How old were you when you came back? What did you get into? So I, I finished my service when I was. Uh, close to 22 years old. Um, immediately after my service, I came back to the United States, which um, at the time was not was not the right decision. Um, I had had gone through many difficult experiences in my military service, and my first thought was, I want to get as far away from this as possible, so that I can breathe and decompress and kind of work through it all. So I came back to Cincinnati. Uh, now the problem with that is is in Cincinnati, there's no one around me who can relate to any of my experiences. 
you know, in Israel, everybody, you know, sadly, unfortunately, everybody's gone through the same thing. Everybody's been to battle. Everyone knows somebody or knows personally or knows somebody who has lost someone in battle. And there's a lot of comfort that, that is felt when you're around people who can relate to you. And coming back to Cincinnati, I didn't have that. Ended up um, self-isolating and, and kind of going down this rabbit hole of, of, of darkness and negativity, uh, getting caught up in all these negative emotions and not having people around me who, who could understand. And there were people around me who wanted to help, but didn't know how to help. And how could they, right? They, again, they, they have no common experience uh, with the ones that I had. And I was really kind of down that rabbit hole for about eight or nine months, uh, really, really in this dark place. And there was one specific story uh, that I thought of that I'd experienced during my military service that, that kind of helped me uh, get out of that place. And it went back to Operation Brothers Keeper shortly after we had found the bodies of these three boys, the parents of the boys came to our base to speak with us. And it's what happened next that, that helped propel me out of that place after our military service and really changed my, my outlook completely in life and how I deal with uh, difficult and trying situations. The very, the very first words, the very first words out of the parents' mouths to us were thank you. Thank you for bringing our boys home to us. Thank you for allowing us to give our children a proper burial and to now use their memories to spread goodness and kindness throughout the world. And, you know, if we're being honest with each other, they had every right, every right in the world to be angry and upset with us. We were in charge of protecting their children and we failed. And as a parent, I'm sure that they found themselves in the most negative, the most difficult situation a parent could ever find themselves in. And even in that moment, somehow, some way, they were able to find a way to still find a light within that darkness. Even in that moment, they were able to still find a way to express gratitude for the sacrifices that we did make. And when I thought about that interaction, you know, maybe a year and a half later back in Cincinnati, it became very clear to me of like, okay, if, if they can do that in that situation, then I have no excuse, right? They lost their children. I, you know, there's nothing worse than that. I need to find a way to, to kind of get myself out of this place and not only get out of this place, but to use these experiences to be that light and, and to help spread that same goodness and positivity to the world around me. And, you know, that's really what happened. I, you know, from there, I, I started uh, speaking and sharing my story and traveling around the country and the world, sharing these experiences and, and trying to be that light and trying to use these negative experiences, not, not allowing them to define and defeat me, but rather to uplift and propel me to, to, to bigger and better places. And, and you know, I, I still think about that experience often. I've, I've had the, the honor and the privilege to meet uh, some of those parents again later on in life and and you know their strength is absolutely remarkable and, there, and there's so much that we can each learn from that I mean I don't need to tell you that we all experience difficult and challenging things in life and and sometimes it may seem like our our life is engulfed in that negativity and darkness but there's always a way and if we can challenge ourselves to find a way to to use that 
that pain, that, that challenge to not defeat and define us, but to propel and uplift us and to use it to be a light to the world around us. And, and that's the most important thing. And, and then I kind of, I try and live that way, you know, each and every day, but it's, but it's thanks to the strength of the parents and, and really on a much grander level, the strength of our entire people uh, really speaks to, to that point. And, and, you know, from there, you know, speaking and, and started, um, you know, using my military training to, to help and defend, you know, the Jewish people. And then recently moved to Los Angeles after I got married in the summer and started an organization here to help veterans after their military service kind of rest or start that next chapter of life and hopefully not have to go through the struggles that I went through during that time period. And at the same time, using uh, their skills and experiences to also provide the best and highest level of security for the Jewish community here in Los Angeles. And that's a little bit of where I am to date. Beautiful. I would say that uh, just for that one nugget, Dayenu, for the whole program tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm completely blown away and inspired. But, but as they say, there's more. Yes. Um, tell us, tell us. So you mentioned early on that your grandfather was one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. And that he played a, a, I know that he played a pivotal role in your life. Tell us about that. I, and your, your grandfather's still alive. Hashem should give him uh, good health and long life. Amen. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so like I touched on earlier, you know, my grandfather is, is without a doubt the biggest inspiration in my life um, has been and, and will continue to be, you know, again, hearing his stories as a child you know, growing up and, and early on, not really comprehending what they all meant, but, but you know, through my teenage years and, and especially now, you know, into my 20s and, you know, during and after my military service, I, I, I think in, in a small way, I understand a little bit of the, uh, of the challenges that he went through as a child and, and to hear about his strength and perseverance and courage and, um, you know, not only that he survived the Holocaust, which is obviously speaks for itself, but the fact that he thrived after the Holocaust, that's the part that really speaks to me. Uh, you know, the fact that, that, you know, after the Holocaust, he, he became a, a well-respected and, and renowned speaker and rabbi and, and or, you know, and, and figure in the Chabad community and went on to translate, uh, you know, the prayer book from its Hebrew text into English and, and many Hasidic texts and, and really created, you know, almost an empire for himself and, you know, kids and grandkids who, who still, you know, follow the faith and believe in the faith and believe in all the same things that he, that he does, you know, that's the part that inspires me. And, um, you know, the way I look at it is, is how could, how could somebody have a grandfather like him and not be inspired? You know, that, that would be harder for me to, to understand, uh, and, you know, I, I hope in some way, you know, he's mentioned it a few times, you know, that, that he's proud and recognizes kind of the journey that I took and, and the things that I've done, you know, for the Jewish people as well. But, but there's, no, there's no shadow of a doubt that, that he's the biggest inspiration in my life for all those reasons. So I, I remember a few years back, I think it was, where yeah. uh, I remember seeing the, the pictures on the Chabad websites of your, your grandfather going back to Auschwitz. And I understand you went with him. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that journey. That it must have been amazing. Yeah. So a few years ago, I did have the, the really the honor and the privilege privilege of going back to Auschwitz with my grandfather, um, and experiencing that with him. And you know that 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 trip was you know incredible on many levels. And you know the thing that stands out again is is 
you know, he did have his emotional moments where he broke down and, and, and cried and, and obviously was reliving many of those painful experiences. But the entire trip, the outlook was not on the negative, but look how far we've come you know, as, as a family, as a people. And, and that was the whole focus. And, and again, it kind of speaks to the same theme that I've been talking about all evening is, you know, the, the strength, the resilience, the, the, uh, the ability for us as a people to, to not use these experiences to destroy us, but, but to propel us. And I remember as we walked into the into Auschwitz under the, you know, the infamous gate, work shall set you free. My grandfather, he rested the hand on, on my shoulder and he turned to me and he said, Label, 72 years ago, I walked under this gate with a soldier by my right side, a Nazi soldier. And today I once again walk through this gate with a soldier by my right side, but he's my grandson. And he serves in the Israeli and the Jewish military. And, you know, and he kind of continued walking up ahead and I, you know, stood there with my jaw on the ground, trying to comprehend the magnitude of what he had just said and really trying to, trying to imagine what he must have been feeling in that moment to see his life come full circle. And I guarantee you as a 10 year old boy walking through the gates of, gates of Auschwitz, you know, the idea of coming back here with his grandson who serves in the Jewish military would not even be, I mean, it would be unfathomable. And, you know, he continued walking and, and I stood there for a few minutes and then ran up to catch up to him. And he was towards the middle of the camp and he was pointing at this specific barrack in the middle of the camp. And he was saying that he wasn't sure if it was this specific, this specific barrack or one in this area, but this was the medical facility in Auschwitz. Um, and during his, his, his time in Auschwitz as a 10 year old boy, he got sick and was transferred to this facility. He had been there for a couple of days when in walked the infamous Dr. Mangala, who for among many other things was known for his brutal and inhumane medical experiments that he would do on children, twins, dwarves, and, and Mangala walked over to the soldier, the Nazi in charge of this barrack, and he pointed at my grandfather and he said, I'm gonna do an experiment on this boy. I'm gonna try and find a specific nerve in his neck and give him an injection. And he said, if I find this nerve, this boy will be paralyzed for life. And if not, he'll be dead in a matter of moments. And my grandfather heard this and as sick, as weak as he was, he jumped off his top bunk. He ran up to Mangala and he started shouting, experiments are for monkeys, not for children. And my grandfather was telling the story in more or less the exact place that it, the exact spot that it took place 72 years earlier. And my grandfather said that Mangala gave him a look that he'd never seen before from a human being until this day he has not seen. You know, Nazi five-star generals were scared of Mangala and here's a 10-year-old boy showing him up in his face. And Mangala reached for the pistol on his waist and my grandfather thought that, you know, this was it. This was the end. This is how it was all going to be over. And Mangala held his stare for a moment and then walked out of the room. Hmm. You know, that strength, that courage, and that bravery that was displayed by a 10-year-old boy in Auschwitz is something that each and every one of us 
can learn a great deal from, right? That no matter the situation, no matter the situation, even in the face of one of the most extreme evils this world has ever seen, we can still always, always find a way to stand up for what is right. And in just 72 short years, the numbers B14, 316, that the Nazis tattooed into the forearm of my grandfather became 820, 7815, the numbers inscribed in my Israeli Defense Forces dog tags. That's what my grandfather means to me. It's, it's, the, it's the coming full circle, the understanding that, that no matter the situation we find ourselves in, what's right, what's right is always right, no matter how difficult or how challenging it is. Uh, and, and it takes people like him and, and the millions of other Jews who have sacrificed so much in order for us to be here. And now we have that responsibility. It doesn't just go away. You know, it's on us to continue that into the next generation as well. Oh, I just need, I need a couple of minutes just to let that story sink in. That is so powerful, so powerful and inspiring. Um, I'm going to address some questions that came through on the chat and we'll give uh, Howard a, a chance to ask his questions. So can I just um, end off with this yeah. real quickly? Yeah, please go ahead. I'm going to, well, let me say it this way is stories are great and they could be even inspirational, but they're completely meaningless if there's no action that follows. So I'm going to challenge everyone on the Zoom call tonight to try and find one thing. Try and find one thing that you're going to start doing, do more of, do better from when you exit out of the Zoom call from when you walk into it, right? Is, you know, my grandfather or the soldiers who served you know, alongside me or millions of other Jews who have sacrificed for our people, they didn't wake up that one morning and say, you know what, today is the day I'm going to give my life for my people. It doesn't work that way. It's the fact that they knew exactly who and what they were. They knew exactly what they believed in. And they were not going to allow another human being on this earth to dictate that for them. It's the Jewish pride that they walked around with each and every day. That and that alone is what allowed them to make those sacrifices in that moment of truth. And if we truly want to honor and remember their sacrifices and ensure that the next generation of Jews has the same ability to live openly and proudly as Jews as we do, we all need to do something. You know, whether it's, you know, deciding that we're going to light Shabbat candles on Friday night or you know, maybe wrap to fill in one more time a week, attend another class, uh, you know, learn more about Judaism, what Israel, what, what the IDF really stand for, share that with our neighbors, our, our children, our grandchildren, because no one is going to do it for us. It's not the rabbi's responsibility. It's not the teacher's responsibility. It's not, you know, the neighbor's responsibility. It's your responsibility. And if we can all find one thing, and the key is to not only do that one thing, but make that one thing yours. Do not allow another human being on this earth to dictate to you when and how you show pride in that one thing. And I think when we do that, we truly honor and recognize and remember the sacrifices of so many Jews. And we ensure that the next generation has the same abilities as we do. And 
this allows us to stop saying the words never again, which we all so commonly say, but actually start living a lifestyle called never again. And I think through this one action, this also allows us to put away those differences that we may have and realize that those are not important and rather unite and bond over the one thing that is most important. And that is the fact that we are the children of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and we can truly say together, I'm Yisrael Chai, and, and, and that is the most important thing. So I'll end off with that challenge to each and every one of you, and I'm happy to answer as many questions as, as we may have. And, um, you know, again, thank you, Rabbi, and thank you all for allowing me to join you this evening. Thank you, thank you, and, and Amen. Um, you, you actually sparked a question for me that I, I would be remiss if we didn't at least reference it. The, yeah. The tragedy from last week in Meron. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, there's the heart is broken and there's really no words uh, on a faith level. I'm just curious if you have any of your own reflections about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you said it, I said it best is, is there really are no words for what happened in, in Meron last week. Uh, you know, the, the heartbreak and, and, you know, I think for me, and I don't know if this is necessarily correct or not, but, you know, I, I've seen some people, some people say that it's not for us to question. And, you know, the way I look at it is that is that's completely not correct. Is, is God wants us to question the things that, that don't make sense. And he wants us to question when there is a tragedy, an unspeakable level. And I think, I think that's actually real faith is that the faith is that we believe that there's an answer somewhere that we may not understand it in this world. We may not understand it in this moment, but I question because I believe that somewhere there's an answer and it doesn't need to make sense right now. And it's very possible. I'm never going to understand it, but, but yes to question and never to accept when such things happen because they're unacceptable and, and, they're painful and and you know one of the worst tragedies that, that I think have, have happened in Jewish histories is, is you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people uniting around such a great celebration of Lagba Omer and to have something so awful happen I've questioned it every moment since I've heard it and I'll continue to question it because I believe that that we should not just accept things like this as well. God has a master plan, so let's move on. Is it needs to hurt? It needs to be painful. It needs to struggle. And, and like I mentioned throughout the whole evening, but at the end of the day, it needs to be used for a positive purpose. And we can't use it to to lessen our faith. We need to use it to strengthen our faith and to strengthen our resolve and, and to know that you know that we can use this pain to to help bring a light. And, and kind of hearing some of the parents or, or relatives speak at some of the funerals. I mean my brain cannot comprehend the strength of our people. It, it doesn't make any sense logically. And, and that's the things that I try and focus on. And, and I question, and I'll continue to question. The way I frame it is the answer to why is what? Yeah. Not to ask why, but the answer is what am I gonna do about it? Yeah. Okay, some lightning round. How safe do local residents feel on a daily basis in Israel? That's a good question. I think it really depends on the time. I think, you know, throughout, through, you know, in a, in, a, in a relatively quiet time, I don't think it's things that people think about. Um, you know, people go on the buses and don't think twice. They go in restaurants and don't think about it. They, you know, people live their lives. Just, I think that's one of the, 
one of the goals of terrorism is to disrupt daily life. And one of the, one of the strengths and resolves of, of the Jewish people is we don't allow it to do that. Life continues, life moves on, people live. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's always in the background and people know it's there. And I think, you know, Israel is a very rigid society because of it, because it's always lingering in the background. But I don't think it's things that people talk about or think about you know, when they're going ahead and living their day-to-day -day lives. Did you see the recent Israeli TV show Kipat Barzel, also called Commandments in English? And if so, do you think it, have you seen it? I have not, no. Okay, so then, then where is it on? Maybe I'll check it out. I don't after. know. Um, Sandrine, if you can post what it's on, we'll, we'll get a chance to watch it. Um, how, do you, how did you follow and give orders if you did not speak Hebrew? So it's a great question. And in, in the first few months, there was a lot of monkey see and monkey do. I just did what the other soldiers around me were doing. You know, if they were running somewhere, I didn't know where they were running or why, but I figured if they're running, I should too. I actually remember uh, one story where myself and a fellow soldier, we were assigned to kitchen duty for the day, which meant that our job that day was just to stand in the kitchen and wash, you know, thousands of pans for all the soldiers on base. And we were in there, we were scrubbing for a couple of hours and my commander walks into the kitchen and the soldier next to me kind of blurts something out in Hebrew that I didn't understand. And my commander mumbles something back to him in Hebrew that my brain couldn't translate fast enough. And the soldier next to me, he drops his pot, he drops his sponge and he starts running out of the kitchen. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on, but I drop my pot and my sponge and I start running out of the kitchen. And I'm literally you know, running, chasing him across the entire base and ended up that he just needed to use the restroom. <laughs> right, but my my brain, I have no idea what's going on. So this is what was this was my life in the IDF for the first couple of months. Um, so it definitely was difficult and challenging. But you know, as time went on, you know, I wasn't around other people who spoke English, so I had to get up to speed as quickly as possible. And being in an environment where all you hear is Hebrew, you start to catch on a little bit and learn. So it took me a few months, but but ultimately I got to a place where I was able to understand commands and and you know, have conversations and connect with the guys around me, but there's no question that the first few months were very difficult because of that. Great story. Um, do you know the name of your grandfather's town? Uh, yes, he was born, uh, the town he lived in was Kashitsa, Czechoslovakia. Awesome. Howard, I see you have a question. Unmute yourself, please. Did we lose him? Um, well, we're waiting for that. Another question here, uh, I think an important question. What are your thoughts about the deep divisions we currently see in Israel between Orthodox and secular? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's sad. I think it's sad. And again, I think, I think there's too many people that have an interest in the division. And I think it's, it's a difficult thing to overcome. Um, I think, again, the media and the news, they like to highlight the division that exists, and there's no question it exists, but, you know, it, it's still the minority, and um, the, the Jewish people as a whole, Israel as a whole, we get along, and we're united, and, and I've seen it countless and countless times, I've, you know, after the tragedy in Meron, you know, there was lines in Tel Aviv of, of secular people lining up to give blood and to be able to, like, this is, this is the Jewish people. And it doesn't get talked about enough, again, because it, it doesn't interest people. The news, the media, we want to show division. We like conflict. We like uh, all these things. So, you know, there, there definitely is, you know, some, some minorities where there is division and, and we have a long way to go in those respects. But there's also so much unity and so much uh, togetherness and kind of that family feel and 
Um, this is what I like to focus on and what I like to spread stories about because this is the reality and uh, we can spend all day and night talking about, you know, the division that exists or we can do our part to try and bring people together. And that's, that's my focus. Beautiful. Label, I'm thoroughly inspired as I'm sure everybody else is. Please uh, keep up your good work of spreading the good word and inspiring people. I appreciate and, um, it. And uh, Hashem should bless you with success in your endeavors and we should share happy times together. Amen, all of us. I appreciate you guys having me. If there are any last minute questions, feel free. Uh, you can get my information from the rabbi as well and feel free to reach out to me through email, social media, whatever it is. Happy to answer any questions or continue the conversation in any way. But thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Atlanta. And um, you know, maybe I'll get down there soon and see you guys in person as well. Love that. We love that. Thank you. Chazak.